because this man has a monster passage to preach. So I'll read it for him. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You, stand over there, or sit by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that the person you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You may be seated. My dad has a saying, which like many of his expressions, I've adopted as my own. I am West Virginia born and West Virginia bred, and when I die, I'll be West Virginia dead. I'm a West Virginia fan. Would anybody here doubt the fact that I'm a mountaineer through and through? Back in the day, they used to say, you know, if you were put on trial and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that may be a somewhat facile question and yet still a reasonable thing to ponder. But for the purpose of this introduction, I'm more interested in your fandom. Now, I know that there are some here that don't claim to be Mountaineer fans. Forgive them. (laughs) Many have chased after other universities to support them and to cheer for them. (laughs) But if you tell me you're a Mountaineer fan... But you don't have a single article of clothing with a flying WV on it. I might not believe you. If you tell me you love West Virginia, but you never watch a game, you can't tell me one player on any of the teams, you don't know who the coaches are, I might not believe you. If you say you're a fan, but you've never come back from Morgantown horse at 2 a.m., I might not believe you. And if you've never spent an entire day in silence because of a disappointing loss, okay, 
That might be just a little bit too far, but <laughs> that was me 25 or 30 years ago. <clears throat> a very wise theologian, actually a theologian from West Virginia once said, what you say you do is not what you do. What you do is what you do. Yeah, it's my dad again. And he said it last week. I had written this before that. But. The one, this is one, one of the issues that we're going to be tackling today in James chapter 2, which is a massive text. Before we get into that second half, uh, we, we got a very important subject to deal with in the first half of the chapter. In chapter, chapter 1, James, the brother of Jesus, gave us some very practical theology in how to face trials, how to ask for wisdom in dealing with them, how to share life together as believers with its ups and its downs, the fleeting nature of life, steadfastness and perseverance, especially in the face of temptation, how what is good and perfect comes from God and how to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, be doers of the word and not just listeners, and what the purest examples of true religion are. Now, we're continuing that practical theology with two weighty issues in chapter 2. The first issue addresses the sin of partiality, and the second issue, faith without works, is dead. God does not show favoritism. If there's one thing that I want us to grasp this morning from this first half of James 2, is that partiality is not congruent with faith in Jesus. Notice verse 1. My brothers, so he's still talking to Christians here, Christians of the diaspora, the scattered abroad, is that how we say it in Wayne County, Dad? Yeah. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Before we identify what the sin of partiality is, let's talk for just a second about what it's not. It's not liking some people more than others. It's not sharing common interests with some. It's not having friends that you consider to be closer than most. May God bless us all with those special friends. And what it certainly is not, pay attention here for one second, what it certainly is not is abiding by and proclaiming clear biblical mandates for the roles in the church, in the home, in our everyday life. Okay? It's not sinful to say without apology that elders and deacons should be men. It's not showing favoritism to require that those who address the congregation in the meeting of the church are men. It's not wicked to insist that husbands are the head of their wives. It is right and good to exhort men to live in a manner that reflects this reality that is true, regardless of how we feel or how those prevalent in our culture feel about it. It's likewise, it's not sinful to instruct our women, to encourage our women, to see our women encourage and reinforce each other to be joyfully submissive to their husbands. It is good that children obey and honor their parents. It's good that employees submit to their supervisors and employers. It's holy for us as a congregation to be in submission to our elders. That's not showing partiality. Okay? So what is it then? Prosopolipsia. Prosopolipsia. Respect of persons. Partiality, the fault of one who, when called on to give judgment, has respect of the outward circumstances of a man and not to their intrinsic merits, and so prefers as the more worthy one who is rich, high-born, powerful, to, to another who does not have these qualities. The word prosopolemsia comes from two words. Prosopon, which is literally your face or your appearance, and lembono, to take. So at its core... It's like to take at face value. It means to prefer somebody based on external aspects, whether that be their skin color, wealth, status, or things of that nature. And the example that James uses in this passage is that of the wealthy man and the poor man. But I, I believe we would be in grave error if we did not apply this principle to other facets of like, like say, ethnicity maybe. When we judge someone by their natural appearance, 
or by what they can do for me, we're in sin. In this theoretical assembly here in James chapter 2, the rich man was treated favorably while the poor man was marginalized. And regardless of the motive, which I think personally is the perception that the wealthy man can do something for these people, or whereas the poor man might be a burden or an embarrassment. But verse 4 tells us that when we make distinctions of this nature, we set ourselves up as judges with evil thoughts. If you are judging others by their natural outward appearance, or by what they can do for you, by their gender, by their ethnicity, or by your past experience with people like them, James says it's evil. Obviously, race is one of the biggest hot-button issues of our day. And I say race because we all know that there's only one race. All people have a common ancestry, as my dad would say, Adam and Eve Smith. But um, <laughs> And really, what we're talking about when we say racism is partiality based on ethnicity. It's ugly, it's wicked, and it's a direct assault on the character of God who made people with a tremendous variety of pigmentation and features like the master artist that he is. We have everything from those who kind of base their entire identity on what people group they hate down to those who they say things like, this is my personal favorite. I'm not a racist. I just think they should stick with their kind. Don't be that person, child of God. God became a man, a Jewish man, and laid down his life, his very life for people from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language. And you're not better than anyone else. Get over yourself. Get over your cultural prejudices. prejudices, And get a, just get over it. A quick caveat here, and I don't, I don't have time and I don't want to get lost in this rabbit hole today, but... There's a reason that I use the word natural in reference to outward appearance. A man wearing lipstick and a dress is not what I'm talking about. There are plenty of other issues that might fall into that category, and that's a discussion that we'd have to entertain another day. But I would urge you to use caution and charity in your assessment of those issues. But it's not charitable, it's not virtuous to call what is evil good or to condone destructive behavior, or to sanction depraved fantasies. So we know from the text here that we're not supposed to show partiality. We know what partiality is, but why? First, let's look at a couple passages, and we'll see in them the nature of God. Acts 10, we see Peter arriving at the house of Cornelius, having just received the vision on the rooftop, you know, the sheet that came down from heaven, And then he was sent for by Cornelius. He arrives and he finds many, many Gentiles here at the house. In verse 27 he says, And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then he gives us a little more clarity in verse 34 and 35 of the same chapter. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God says, don't call any person common or unclean. Why? Because God shows no partiality. This is the same word we looked at. It's just a slightly different tense here in, in, uh, in Acts. James urges us to show no partiality as we hold the faith. Well, here, Peter, via Luke, is telling us that God shows no partiality. In Romans 2, Paul is addressing the fact that God will judge every man according to his work, whether Jew or Gentile. Judgment will fall on them because of what they do, just as he will reward those who do good regardless of nationality or ethnicity, because verse 11, chapter 2 says, God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6 is talking about the relationship between slaves and master. And think employer-employee, not chattel slavery. That um, He's instructing the servants how to respect their masters and masters 
to respect their servants. And notice the why, starting in verse, or in verse 9 here. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Are we getting the picture? One more. Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with sincerity of heart. And then we pick up here in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Folks, this is the character of God. I referenced Revelation 2 earlier uh, as the picture in heaven of that great throng that's made up of people. People like you, people like me, people that don't look like us. From every nation and tribe, every people and language. And they're there in that vision that John had because Jesus died for them. Because partiality is not part of the character of God. Whatever you've learned however you've been hurt in the past, whatever you think might be in it for you, you must defeat partiality in you. I must defeat partiality in me. If together we hold fast the faith and want to reflect the character of God. Incidentally, this is a bonus, if we examine Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 a little more closely, we see the basic foundation for the premise of those roles that I mentioned earlier. You know, it's right there in the same passage that says that there's no partiality with God. So if you're trying to justify egalitarianism or female authority in church because there's no partiality in God, that dog will not hunt. So first we see we should not show partiality because we are to reflect the character of God. And second, we should not show partiality because of the royal law. Verses 8 and 9 say, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here James refers to this as the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I'm going to stick with Matthew here, chapter 22. Uh, You know this context that we're talking about here. The, The Pharisees trying to trap our Lord here. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, I'm sorry, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Also in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see what we call, we have the royal law, now we have the golden rule, right? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So according to the royal law, the second great commandment and the golden, law, golden rule, we should love our neighbors as ourselves and treat other people the way we want to be treated. This doesn't say if they look like you. This doesn't say if they're same, from the same socioeconomic class. It doesn't say if they're a particular gender. There's still only two, by the way. <laughs> Folks, we don't even have a good excuse to treat Yankees poorly. <laughs> Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean they should stick with their own kind. Loving your neighbor means welcoming others in our assembly, in our lives, just as you have been welcomed by a God for whom you can do nothing. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. We seldom get something that clear-cut in Scripture, right? Don't do it. Kill it. Kill the sin of prejudice and partiality in your life. I wish we had some time to uh, discuss the, the class warfare that's kind of mentioned here in the balance of this chapter where it talks about the oppression of the rich and the blasphemy of the name. Uh, but the bulk of the kingdom is made up by those who Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1 as not being wise, influential, 
or of noble birth. But I will leave it at this. I will say this. It's not okay to treat the rich man poorly. It's not a virtue to be poor. But God, in order to make his power known and for his own glory, has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. Let God be God in whom there is no partiality. And you just treat everyone the way you'd like to be treated. Even rich people. Even Yankees. That's hard. I'll leave the rest of that for Jason to handle when he gets into chapter 5 where he talks about that, that same subject some more. We also, unfortunately, don't have enough time to examine the transgression of the law. Being guilty in one aspect means being guilty of all. And those who do not show mercy will be judged accordingly by the law. But again, I want to make one observation. We who are under the law of liberty and not under the law of condemnation, saved by Jesus Christ's righteousness and fulfillment of the law on our behalf, must be merciful. We who are forgiven must be forgiving. We are to speak and to act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's going to lead us into our second half of this chapter now. And this is one of the most hotly contested passages in the history of the church. You know, for much of his life, Martin Luther thought James shouldn't be included in the canon of Scripture because of this passage. He later repented of that claim, but um, it is truly difficult, and we're going to need the totality of Scripture to understand it rightly. Some of you might be thinking, what's the problem here? Uh, but let's just start... Let's, let's just read the whole uh, second half of this chapter again. I know Andrew just read it a few minutes ago for us, but let's go through it again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself... If it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. If you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, oh, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. <clears throat> Did you catch verse 24 in there? It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now if we compare that to one of, I think I would I know one of mine, but I think I can say collectively one of our favorite passages, which Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we take these two verses at face value, apart from any theological framework, apart from a faithful and consistent hermeneutic, we've got a serious problem. Without considering the whole of Scripture, James 2.24 is like a blast to the reactor module. The whole system goes down. That's how you said it. The whole system goes down. If we forget about verse 10 in Ephesians 2, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hopefully, 
we're able to see today how these passages complement each other as we engage the very word of God. And this is the very word of God. And it's important that we remember that. All right, I would like to quickly walk us through multiple passages. Passages that we're all probably very familiar with. Just so we can get a taste of the totality of scripture on this subject. Um, I know that this is a lot, and I'm confident that you know that there, there are also many, many more verses of this nature that I did not include today. But I think it's important that we let Scripture speak so that we can properly understand our passage in James 2 today. So I'm going to fly through these, but I want you to listen for words like faith, believe, works, law, righteousness, okay? Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, remember that phrase, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by or through faith. Skipping over Romans 4 for the moment. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 11, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Galatians chapter 2, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Just a couple more. Almost there. Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means necessary, sorry, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. So I ask you today, friends, is there any doubt that a right standing before God is achieved by the sinner through faith, completely apart from works. Amen. I know that was a lot of verses. I know that was, I actually cut a few out. That was really a small sample, just so we can kind of feel the weight of that totality of Scripture. So, what do we do then with James chapter 2? Is this the direct hit to the main reactor? Does our whole system go down? Is there disagreement 
in the Holy Word of God? No. I'd like to thank you all for coming today, and let's be this. <laughs> all right, now let's see if we can let's see if we can land the plane here. Over the centuries, godly men have created systematic theology. This stems from a deep desire to understand the whole of Scripture. It's basically just organizing all the different moving parts throughout the 66 books of the canon of Scripture. It's not perfect, and some systems are better than others, but it is important, and it's really even necessary. In our systems, we identify theological concepts. We use words like sanctification. When we're talking about systematic theology, we understand sanctification to primarily be that period of time between our justification and our glorification, whereby the believer is conformed to the image of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jason has pointed that out several times in our study in Hebrews. But sanctify literally means to set apart. So there's a sense in which we're sanctified before the foundations of the earth. There's a sense in which we are sanctified at a point in time whereby faith we believe and we're sealed for eternity. There's a sense in which we are sanctified through our walk. And there's a sense in which we will be fully and finally sanctified. And the point is, we can trap ourselves with our theological concepts if we're not careful. Alright, one illustration that I've also used, often used with the teens is this. What's the state bird of West Virginia? Cardinal, yeah. What do you call a professional baseball player in St. Louis? What do you call a professional football player in Phoenix? What is the mascot of Stanford University? (laughs) I heard the right answer. I also heard the wrong answer. (laughs) It's Cardinal. What do you call a senior clergy member in the Roman Catholic Church that's been selected by the Pope? Okay, Cardinal. These are all different uses of the same word. St. Louis Cardinals, Arizona Cardinals, that's based on the red bird, the beautiful red bird. But not Stanford. Somebody said it was a tree. And that's, they do have a little tree that runs around on the sidelines looking stupid. But the Stanford mascot is not the bird. It's the collar, Cardinal. That's their mascot, Cardinal, the collar. It's definitely not a tree. The Roman Catholic Cardinal... I would assume is based on his preeminence or importance, like we might say, you know, we broke a cardinal rule, right? So those are all different uses of the same word. But I think maybe even a better example is the elder and deacon. There are two offices given to us in the church, elder and deacon. My mom is an elder in Providence Bible Church. My dad is an elder in Providence Bible Church. Are both of these statements true? Yes, they are. Now, we just talked about how Scripture is clear that elders and deacons are meant to be men. We've already alluded to that. So how can my mom be an elder? Because she's old. (laughs) Old Old-ish. Older than most. The Greek word presbyteros, which is elder, has the same meaning in English as it does in Greek. It means older. The same thing is true for the word deacon. Diakonos. It means servant. There are many ladies here that serve this body faithfully. There's an office of elder. And there's an office of deacon. And then there's just being older. And then there's just serving or just deaconing. Okay? You see the difference? Our systematic theology, we use theological terms like justification to identify our being declared righteous. This is the standing of one who has been made into a new creation. There is therefore now no condemnation. We are not guilty. We receive the righteousness of Christ... And Christ received our sinfulness in that great exchange on Calvary. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And how does that great exchange happen? 
What is the means by which we receive this righteousness and this standing before a holy God? Is it by works? Is God waiting up in heaven, biting his metaphorical fingernails, just hoping that some unrighteous sinner is somehow going to find the virtue in his wicked heart to do some good works so that he can thereby declare him righteous? No. And good news, that's not what James is saying. The whole system is not going down. We're saved by grace through faith alone, as Paul and Jesus said, and James is in perfect harmony. The theological definition of justification is being declared righteous. It's a sound biblical definition, but it's not the only usage of the word. Dekai a'o. Dekai a'o. Dekai a'o. To render righteous, or such he ought to be. To show, exhibit, events one to be righteous, such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. To declare, pronounce one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. Three definitions from Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. The first, to render righteous. That would be descriptive of how God renders his chosen ones to be righteous, as we've just talked about. He didn't just say, eh, sin, it's not a big deal, it's all good. We'll just, we'll just forget about that. No! Because God is also holy and just. And the one who was and is perfection became sin for us. The Father made him become sin, and it was his perfect will from before the creation to crush his son. So sin was far from no big deal. But it was paid for. Atoned by the marring and the slaughter of the perfect lamb. You know, the third definition also deals with that theological concept of being declared righteous. You are not how you ought to be. You cannot do the work that is necessary for you to be worthy of deserving. But because of Christ, we who believe by faith are declared such. We are declared righteous. But that second definition, I guess they're numbered there, but... um, that second line, to show, exhibit, events. To show, exhibit, events, one to be righteous. Could this be the justification that James has in view? I think so. Let's go back to the text here and we'll get all these pieces together. And to do that, we're going to have to go to Romans and to Genesis. But first, Paul in Romans and throughout his epistles is not answering the same question that James is answering. Recently, one of my Facebook friends and a fellow moderator, Carissa Hynek, shared this meme in our group. Wait a second, this is wholesome, actually Christian content, and it's brilliant. I hope you can see it. You're not seeing it right now, right? I'll go ahead and talk about it here for a second. I'll see if I can get that up there. But basically, it's a has everybody in the world seen Lord of the Rings? I think I get most, most heads nodding, most hands going, okay. So in the Fellowship of the Ring, when, when Frodo is realizing the, the, the problems that the ring is creating in the Fellowship, and he decides he's got to go by himself or it's not, you know, not, not going to succeed. So he jumps in that boat and he starts paddling toward the other side of the river. Anduin? Not Anduin. Starts with an I, doesn't it? Anyway, starts paddling across that river. And um, Frodo in this meme represents faith. It has the heading of faith. And some of the words in the, in the uh, subtitles are, are marked out so that it just says, I'm going alone. So Frodo representing faith says, I'm going alone. And then Samwise, oh, there we go. I don't know if you can read all that, but then Samwise who represents works in this meme, says, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. (laughs) That's brilliant. It's a great meme, but honestly, Carissa's commentary on the meme was perhaps a little bit more helpful for me, which she said, get the next one. She says this, Romans shows us how we are justified before God. Faith, James shows us how we are justified before men works. 
And just as a, as a bonus, another moderator in the group, John Stoltz, made the point in the comment. There we go. John Stoltz made the point in the comments that Frodo never would have made it to Mordor without Samwise. Okay? Can't have one without the other. It's necessary. All right, now the text here. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? He gives us the example of a brother who's cold, he's hungry, and then someone says, be warm and fed, but doesn't give him a blanket or a sandwich. What good is that? This is a double whammy now, if you pay attention here. Because James is not only making the comparison that your hypothetical faith, your proclamation of faith, is just like the verbal exhortation to be warm and fed when not accompanied by a blanket and a sandwich. It's completely useless. But I think he's also saying, if you profess faith in Christ and treat your supposed brother this way, it probably ain't so. Now take special note here in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Who is the audience here? Who is the justification for? James is not talking about justification before God. He's talking about a justification before men. He's talking about showing, exhibiting, evincing, demonstrating a reality that's already true. In verse 19, you believe that God is one. Remember that from Romans 3 we read earlier? I said, remember that? God is one. You you believe that God is one. You do well. Good for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. Saving faith is not merely an acknowledgement of fact. The reformers, to rebuff the heresy of Rome, categorized faith into three categories, notitia, ascensus, fiducia. We talked about this on Wednesday nights with the teens, and I think I even used it in the last time I spoke, last June on on Sunday morning. So I won't belabor it, but notitia represents the content of faith, the object of what's being believed. think, Think of it as the object that we're taking notice of, notitia. A census would be a conviction of things and making judgment about things. And then fiducia is a personal reliance or actually placing trust in. Aaron and I went ziplining in Costa Rica a few weeks ago. You know, they strapped harnesses on us. The harness, in this case, would be that object. We take notice that there's a harness around our bodies. Noticia. We could pull on them, check the materials. Even We could even observe other people flying across a canyon with their harnesses attached to the zip line. So a, a census tells us, like, these harnesses are strong and they're adequate. But when you step up on that platform and you hook your hook to that cable and they say go and you go, that's fiducia. That's trust. It's more than just an acknowledgement of the fact that I think the harness is good enough. It's getting on the harness and sliding... 250 feet above the ground, going 40 kilometers per hour. That's trust. Everybody knows there's a God. No matter how much they hate it or reject it, they know it. Some say they believe in the God of the Bible, but man, they have their own plans. They have their own ways that they're going to try to get there and appease Him. they got their own ideas. Congrats, you just reached the level of demon. It's only those who receive perfect faith as a gift from God that have saving faith. And saving faith works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, at long last, thank you for your patience, we're getting to Abraham. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? On the altar. Where does James go here? Okay, remember that. Where does James go here? How does this compare to where Paul goes in Romans 4? Let's go there. Let's go to Romans 4. And we really should 
read this entire chapter, but I have to cherry pick a little bit because of time. So, and just remember too, remember that real long passage in, in Romans three that I read earlier. God is just and a justifier. This chapter four, this is like the next verse after that passage that we read earlier. So Romans four, what shall I'm sorry? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This chapter goes on to talk about how this all happened before circumcision. It was before the law. Thank you, Andrew, for that this morning. Um, but notice that what the, who the audience is in, in Romans 4. Not before God. James' audience was show me. Paul's audience is show God. It's before God. But now let's look at where Paul went. We talked about where James went. Let's look at where Paul went. We're going to where Paul went first. Paul's illustration takes us to Genesis 15. You know, God tells Abraham that his reward would be great. Abraham says, yeah, but his heir was Eleazar of Damascus. And God says, no, 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 it's not going to be Eleazar, but your son would be, uh, your own son would be your heir. Then he picks it up, picking up in verse uh, verse 5 of chapter 15. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Boom! Justified! The theological term, the theological concept, justified, declared righteous before God. Based on the Lamb who would come, apart from circumcision, apart from the law, apart from any working or worthiness in Abraham. In the rest of that chapter, we see that beautiful picture. As Abraham brought the animals for the rite of the covenant, and he cut them in two, as was the custom, and then he and God walked through the parts together, right? You know, Abraham did his part, and God did his part, right? No. What did Abraham do? He fell asleep. He went to sleep. That was his contribution to that covenant, was sleep. And God in the form, beautiful, beautiful imagery, the form of the smoking pot and the flaming torch, passed through those pieces by himself. And he made that covenant with himself, by himself, for himself, and for all of us who would come to be recipients of that great exchange and would therefore be the sons of Abraham. Now let's just look where James went for his Abrahamic illustration. So remember, now James is making his case, which is not the same case, just so we're clear, it's not the same case that Paul is making. James goes some 25 to 30 years after the events of Genesis 15 to Genesis 22. And we know this account too. We'll pick it up in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here, I'm, here I am, my son, he said, Behold, we've got fire and wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. An obedient son... God will provide for himself the lamb. A father sacrificing his son, his only son, and a ram caught in a thicket. You know, the pictures in this passage are just astounding. And I think Jason often reminds us 
That we lose the wonder of this because of our familiarity. But just, just take that in this morning. But do you see the case that James is making here? Can you see that he's answering a different question than Paul? Do you grasp the concept? James is addressing people that make the claim of saving faith, but then continue to live as if nothing has changed. He uses the example of Abraham 30 years after being declared righteous by God. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see it? He's talking about Genesis 22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. So now he goes to to chapter 15. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. He's showing this hypothetical foolish person that makes this claim saying that he has faith but he has no accompanying works. He's saying the faith of Abraham in Genesis 15 is vindicated. It's evidenced. It's demonstrated by what happens in chapter 22. He's not saying that God was so impressed by Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, his only son, that he decided he was worthy of justification in a salvific sense. Nonsense. His faith was completed. It was perfected by the accompanying works. Just like Paul said in Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But in verse 10, we're created for good works. This is the fruition. This is the fruit. This is the evidence that can actually be seen by men. Of the reality that a dead sinner has been made alive. Just like the seed that's planted grows into a tree. This work is the fulfillment of the faith. Faith without works is dead. That kind of faith, it can't save you. It's not just a mental assent to facts. It's not about saying magic words. It's not about praying a sinner's prayer. It's not about knowing the right things. The demons have excellent theology. It's about fiduciary faith. A faith that trusts A faith that understands that your works aren't ever good enough to earn favor in God's sight, but the work of Jesus on our behalf is good enough. And that kind of faith doesn't come from you, brothers and sisters. That faith is a gift of God. And that faith will produce fruit. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the verse that really terrified me. But I hope that you can see now that James isn't addressing the issue of justification before God, but rather the evidence or the evincing of that reality, justifying the person making the claims in the eyes of men. Faith and works are an inseparable pair for the believer. You cannot have one without the other. Just so we get a full understanding, we get a second example. This time it's a Gentile and also a woman. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We have just experienced death in our midst. We honored our sister and we worshipped her savior this past Thursday. And it was a beautiful time of mourning and celebrating and Her mortal body was laid to rest yesterday in Robbinsville. It's of no use anymore. Her spirit has left. Her body will one day be made new and incorruptible, but for now, her body is of no further use to her. And the same is true of a person who claims faith in Jesus, but is not changed. Now, we're at summary here, okay? James is a practical book of theology. It hits us right where we live. Don't be a hearer and not a doer and deceive yourself. 
Don't look at a mirror and then not make the necessary changes. Care for those in distress. Don't judge by appearance. Eschew your prejudice. Faith without works is dead. Tame your tongue. Don't quarrel with each other. Be patient in suffering. These and other themes are dominant. As much of James rehashes much of the words of Jesus himself. I got three J's. Judges. Judges with evil thoughts. Don't show partiality. Prejudice and favoritism are incongruent with faith in Christ. We all should know that we are, call- we are called to judge. We've all heard the misappropriation of the phrase, judge not. In our judgments, remember that such were some of you. And remember that you will be judged by the same judgment you pronounce and measured by the same measurements you use on others. Mercy has been your portion in Christ. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Justification. In Christ, we are declared righteous before God, by God, and that is by grace through faith alone. And that faith is completed in the production of good works. And justify. Judges, justification, and justify. Our works are the justification or the evidence to support our claim that we have faith in Christ. You know, we all know guys who talk a good game, but don't back it up. You know what? You don't have to justify yourself to me. You don't have to prove anything to me. But think for a second here. If your claim of salvation requires you to try to justify yourself before men, then you're going about it the wrong way. Understanding what Christ has done for you, if you are a co-heir with Him, even a partial understanding, even a flawed understanding, which is really all we have is a partial, flawed understanding. But that partial, flawed understanding will dramatically change your life. It should be evident naturally, not something you manufacture. I don't put these shirts on day after day so I can convince everybody I'm a big West Virginia fan. I do it because I love West Virginia. How much more should our love for Jesus and our response to the gospel produce in us the evidence of that love? Jesus will never break your heart. He'll never fumble the football. He never misses the game-winning shot. He doesn't get arrested for a DUI in Pittsburgh. You know what? Even in death, even over death, Jesus is victorious. In Romans 10, Paul quotes the psalmist saying, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. God sees the heart. Men see the fruit in other men. The works of sinful man can never earn or merit the grace of God. In fact, Jesus has some pretty harsh words for those who seek to find redemption in their works. We're back into Matthew 7 here. We're almost finished. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a distressed tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now listen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A healthy tree bears good fruit. A diseased tree bears bad fruit. Those who trust in what they've done, look at what we've done in your name. Their best works are lawlessness. They aren't known to Jesus. And Paul also says to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. James says, faith without works 
is dead. And can such a faith save you? Perfect harmony, the totality of Scripture. What you say you do is not what you do. What you do is what you do. And what you say you believe is not what you believe. What you do is what you believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I just thank you for the harmony and the, uh, the, the unison in these voices from, from great men of, the, of our faith. And for the guidance, the practical wisdom that we get from this book. And I just pray that you would uh, be honored and glorified in the lives of, of these people, your people, today. And we do ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will stand with me for a benediction. From 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Thank you. you may be dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can. <laughs>